Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Busy agenda today, lots of stuff going on. I want to talk and start a discussion about the use of Ireland's budget surpluses that the Department of Finance's forecast uh, was talking about earlier in the week. And the debate has started here already, which wouldn't surprise you about what use those surpluses should be put to. And there's a body of opinion out there that basically we should spend all this money straight away. And of course, from a government's perspective, um, ahead of an election in the next year or two, uh, there's a temptation to do that. So I just want to put some perspective on that and get your views. Um, I want to talk about and start a discussion about ECB interest rates, what's happening there, because we got the minutes of the March meeting um, published earlier this week. And um, I think it gives us a clear indication of where European rates go from here. A lot of stuff going on in the United States. We have um, some economic data releases. Um, we had the Fed's beige book. And um, we had a couple of Fed officials talking in the last 24 hours about the outlook for interest rates. And Janet Yellen was saying some interesting things at a speech in John Hopkins University about the relationship with China, something we discussed in our last podcast. Um, I think it's worth having a look at what's happening oil prices at the moment um, in the context of the moves by OPEC a few weeks back to curb supply to try and get prices up. Um, It ain't working. Um, Rishi Shunak at the moment is sitting on the report about Dominic Rabb and the bullying allegations that were made against him. And I think the significant thing here really is that Rabb has suggested that if uh, allegations of bullying are actually confirmed in this report, um, he will step down. And if that happens, it will be a huge blow, uh, another blow to Rishi Sunak. And uh, so lots to talk about, Chris, uh, domestically and globally. But I want to start off 
by referring to a piece that you wrote in our Substack site yesterday about AI and the power of AI. You go through the arguments on both sides, um, I think, in a very compelling way. Uh, but I, I just want to throw a statistic at you that I read on the Economist website this morning. Uh, they publish every day a figure of the day. And the figure of the day today is 3.9%. Okay. And 3.9% is the chance that AI experts assign to the possibility of the technology causing an existential catastrophe where fewer than 5,000 humans survive by 2100. Um, how you can assign a probability of 3.9% to that, I've no idea, but it's a pretty stark conclusion. It is indeed. Um, I, like you, don't understand how you arrive at such a precise number or indeed any number. So I don't think that there is any particular way of uh, arriving at a precise estimate of the chances of an extinction level event in any circumstances, let alone the ones associated with, with AI. It's just something that I don't think that we can do. It's, it's, uh, I think the jargon is non-ergodic, but uh, let, let's not go there. The reason why I wrote that article about AI is that, first of all, it fascinates me. And whenever anything interests me in this particular way, I often write about it. And one of the things in my writing career, which is, goes back many decades now, uh, mostly for newspapers, but more recently for our Substack site, is that often it is, I'm humbled by the, a simple fact, which is that what fascinates and interests me, for example, AI, often doesn't uh, really interest uh, a wider readership and vice versa. Things that I that frankly leave me, <clears throat> excuse me, cold, uh, fascinates other people. So my interests often do not coincide with, with my readers. And I found that time and time again when I wrote in particular for the Irish Times for many years. And I found it on our Substack site. And it's no different again this time. I think AI is massive. I think it's huge. I think it's already impacting on people's lives. And I think it's going to be hugely impactful going forward. And the article really didn't get much traction at all uh, in relation to previous stuff that we've written. Um, it didn't get many comments. Uh, very few people shared it. And a typical comment such as we got, and there weren't many, was, nah, AI isn't that interesting. It's not going to affect me. Uh, go and do something else, Chris, was, was one thing that somebody said. Uh, so I go through the article and explain why I think it's it's interesting already and why it is impacting already. And there are lots of stats, there are lots of stories, lots of narratives about what this version of AI is doing. Um, for example, a common thing that you've probably seen yourself, Jim, is that uh, one of these chat GPT models recently passed the American bar examination, which is the the legal entry requirement. It's a pretty tough, fierce exam, and it passed it in the 90th percentile. So it was one of the best answerers of all of these questions. And similar results have been obtained for uh, medical school exams and other graduate school entries into the United States. So it, it's achieving a lot. These GPT models are called large language models because that's what they are. They involve the exploration and analysis and usage of words. And they are massive, massive data sets that deploy deep learning and other algorithms to essentially be able to arrive at a prediction. 
And the prediction is based on what you put into the model in the form of usually a question. And in the jargon, these questions are called prompts. And there are skilled and unskilled ways of asking these questions, of supplying these prompts. And the skilled ways uh, have already generated new jobs. This system hasn't yet destroyed any jobs, but we know that it has created some new ones, which is interesting in and of itself in terms of the economics of AI. And the new jobs are called uh, prompt whisperers. And what they are are people who know how to interrogate these systems very, very skillfully. And I've seen jobs advertised at around $300,000 a year for these skilled prompters already. Um, it's quite a big deal. And what the models do is that they take your question, look at the structure of your question, look at each letter, each word, each sentence, each paragraph, and uh, predict what the right next word should be. They are simply prediction models. So in that sense, they're pretty dumb. They're not that intelligent in the sense that you or I might use the word intelligence. That raises the question, what is intelligence? We don't know what human intelligence is. So I'm not sure we can ever know what artificial intelligence is. But these chatbot models are particular versions of AI. They are a subset of AI. They are not AI in, in an all-encompassing sense. And they have their limitations. They get things wrong. Uh, but they can do already very, very powerful things. What they can't do, going back to your original point about existential risk, is destroy the planet. That's going to require them to be connected to certain things that they're not connected to uh, at the moment. And... There's the, the fundamental risk is associated with something called the alignment problem, which is how do you align these systems to human values? And that's exercising the minds of technicians and philosophers. And I'm not sure nobody knows the answer. So I go through all of the different arguments about why people think this is a nothing burger and why people think this is very profound. And in particular, inevitably, given on who, who I am, I look at the economics of this. And the predictions that the, these systems will produce a jobs apocalypse. And I take my steer from various sources, not least an old friend of this podcast, a guy called Noah Smith, who's written extensively about this. And he doesn't think it's going to be a jobs apocalypse because people haven't thought this through. And what, this, what these systems will do is that they will make tasks easier and they will automate certain tasks rather than whole jobs. So I think it will make, on balance, people more productive and more efficient. Um, it will upskill rather than abolish jobs. And I think it'll also lead to the creation of new jobs. If you want to think about the economics of this from uh, a leaving cert perspective, uh, a simple concept that's introduced to trainee economists very early on is comparative advantage. And if you think about jobs in the context of comparative advantage, you can see in which ways in which this jobs apocalypse will not come about. The jobs apocalypse thing is very interesting because it, that prediction that there is going to be one predates the advent of these chat GPT models. You and I have been talking about it for years, Jim, and chat GPT only came into existence last November. What, the other thing that we talk about on this podcast a lot is how tight labor markets are. So the jobs apocalypse has been around for as long as there's been automation, not just artificial intelligence. Maybe automation is a form of artificial intelligence. I don't know. But for as long as automation has been around, destroying jobs supposedly we you and i on this podcast talk about increasingly tight labor markets there's a shortage of workers rather than a surplus so it it hasn't happened yet so i go through all of this this stuff and conclude my conclusion is twofold one is nobody really knows anything 
in, in any precise detail. So don't trust precise forecasts like the one that you mentioned earlier on. But I do think that we can make, and this is my second point, general statements. And the important one is, is this, is this going to be a big deal or not? And relatedly, is it going to be a, a good thing or a bad thing? I think it is already a big deal. And I think there's plenty of evidence for that. And I cite that and I give you the reasons why I think it's going to be very beneficial. I think it will lead to a productivity boom and it, it will be economic growth enhancing. And the big question, therefore, becomes a policy one, a political one. How are we going to share the gains from AI? And nobody has the answer to that. We know that the gains to technology that we've had in recent years have not been shared equally. That's the rise in inequality that we've spoken about many times. And is this going to accelerate or slow down the winner-takes-all world that we live in? If policymakers do nothing, sit back and just look at this and hope for the best, then I do think that it potentially will accelerate the winner-takes-all thing. And I, I do worry about the political, social and economic consequences of further rises in inequality. But that's not guaranteed. That doesn't have to happen. It might happen differently. If if we all get to upskill, then maybe we'll all get to benefit. So lots of questions, a few very tentative answers. And that's the main point of the piece is that the answers can only be tentative. But I would all urge all those people out there who don't think that this is a big deal to have a look, look at this or indeed any other piece that's been written about this. There's a fantastic series of articles in The Economist this week. You've mentioned one aspect of those. Don't necessarily read just my article, but have a look at that. And I think that anybody that looks at this stuff in any kind of detail would end up, he says, humbly agreeing with me. It's massive. It's huge. It is going to affect everybody. Fascinating. Um, I, I think the one thing that technology has certainly delivered, and as you say, we've discussed the impact of technology on jobs over many years. Uh, but I, I do think there are regional employment implications for technology. And, you know, we've seen that in agriculture, we've seen that in the automobile industry, particularly in the United States. So it'll be interesting to see. Moving closer to home, Chris, um, the Department of Finance earlier this week published its medium term economic forecast. The As we discussed in the last podcast, the economic prognosis is a pretty positive one, uh, particularly given the global headwinds that are out there that we all know about that we've discussed. But the public finances piece is interesting. Um, the preferred measure at an EU level of the government balance is called the general government balance. OK, this year, the Department of Finance is forecasting a surplus of 10 billion. Next year, 16.2 billion. In 2025, 18.1 billion. And in 2026, 20.8 billion. Okay, these are absolutely massive numbers. It's a massive surplus to deliver. And of course, as we've discussed many times, uh, this is driven by extreme tax revenue buoyancy, particularly on the um, on the corporation tax side, as we've discussed many times. But the Department of Finance then came out of the traps and saying that, listen, we believe this year that 12 billion of that corporation tax take is vulnerable. And that's roughly half what we're going to collect this year. And the reason they fear it's vulnerable is because of uh, the global technology problems, because of the um, changes to global corporation tax that are coming down the road. And it's, it's nuanced. They're not sort of saying that 12 billion is going to disappear this year, but they would regard 12 billion of this year's take 
as vulnerable at some stage in the future and you can roll that out over the next few years so the, but but on the other hand pardon the pun that i looked at what it's forecasting for corporation tax receipts last year 22.6 billion was delivered this year it's going to be it's forecast over 24 billion and by 2026 they're talking about 27.2 billion being collected from corporation tax so while they have all of these reservations about the permanency of these taxes. Um, it is certainly not built into their central forecast. They believe they will continue. But I guess the role of policymakers, and indeed I think the role of economists, is to be able to identify what the risks are, what could go wrong, and take appropriate action to deal with that. And as I say, the, the risk the department identifies that I wouldn't disagree with is that up to half the corporation tax take is vulnerable at some stage in the future. The question arises, what do you do with these sorts of surpluses? Um, we've seen a significant debate arise in this country over the last few days. Um, basically, people are saying that this money should be spent. Um, a people before profit TD was arguing, it's obvious what we do is it. we buy social housing. And of course, buying up housing from the private sector for social housing purposes in an environment where the biggest constraint in the housing market is the lack of supply is just going to create all sorts of problems if you transfer housing from the private stock into the social stock you're just going to exacerbate the problem in the private stock and of course i've always argued in relation to the housing market that um it's multifaceted we have three components. We have the social and affordable component. We have the owner-occupier component. In other words, people who want to buy houses to live in. And thirdly, we have the rental component of the market. And if you focus your attention on one component, you inevitably cause problems in the other two components. So this notion we just go out there and spend all this money buying up social housing um, is frankly quite ridiculous. I, I suppose, and I've I've kind of argued this to some extent in recent times as well, uh, that rather than cutting taxes in an environment where the economy is already um, growing pretty strongly, where you know we're close enough to capacity constraints in many areas, you know, pumping more money through tax cuts or expenditure increases into an economy like that will just exacerbate the bottlenecks and cause inflation to go even higher than it is at the moment. Uh, but of course, politically, there has to be a strong temptation to do that over the next 18 months, um, given that an election is due and given that the government is um, in some trouble in the opinion polls at the moment. Uh, so there's, there's an economic stroke, political balance to be achieved here. But I think economically, it would be wrong to turn around in the budget later this year and implement significant tax cuts and expenditure increases. It, it would just be totally pro-cyclical and I think would cause all sorts of problems. Uh, the government has already put $6 billion into the um, National Reserve Fund or the Rainy Day Fund, as we call it. Uh, that's good, I think, and I, I would like to see the government continuing to build that fund up. But I suppose the question then I was about to get to there was, uh, what can government do in relation to the overall housing problem? Because to me, you know, housing is the existential crisis at the moment. 
it is the biggest priority we face as a country in the medium in the short and medium term i know climate change obviously is a huge problem as well as is the aging demographic of the population over the coming years but housing is the immediate problem socially economically politically so what can government do in relation to housing um you know at one level you'd say well yeah government should step in and pump money into um enabling the private sector for example to deliver housing more quickly um the state doesn't build houses so i can't see that changing but the state can get the private sector to build and buy from them but pumping money into a construction sector that is already operating at high levels of capacity could be problematical you know we should get out there and bring in um external players into delivered housing if if that is what is required and i think it is uh but you know there's there's a nuanced argument around that as well i think and 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 i guess this is the challenge of policy making in general um you know policy making has to be seen in a holistic way you know there are many aspects to it so if you're going to pump more of that surplus into trying to deliver more housing you've got then to look at the regulatory regime um you know is the planning system fit for purpose um you know and the, the whole question of nimbyism that we've discussed all of these areas need to be addressed as a matter of urgency and priority before you start pumping money into the housing market you you will see over the coming months um huge debate about this and as i say the political temptation is obviously to go for a giveaway budget in october of this year dangerous in my view are you ready to enhance your future in tech then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that has more tech unicorns than france germany and sweden combined the nation that was third in the world to have a 1 trillion dollar tech sector valuation the nation where great talent comes together visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work live and move to the uk introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard but now with bluehost you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique wordpress website or store right away from there you can customize your design colors and content and bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like google and bing from step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins bluehost makes wordpress wonderful for everyone go to bluehost.com/wondersuite yeah the political business cycle as we used to call it in the economics literature is is alive and well and by that that's a reference to the pro business cycle um policies that you you alluded to there um the government doesn't work to stabilize it actually makes booms boomier and busts bustier to use an old bertie hearn phrase to paraphrase bertie hearn uh, this the housing thing we've talked about a lot and i think we'll probably talk about it forever jim and it's one of those peculiar issues that everybody has a very strong opinion about and when you actually look at it uh it's far more complicated nuanced as you say repeatedly there than people generally politicians in particular make it out to be um we don't know with certainty what has caused the housing crisis one of the things that i observe a lot 
on this podcast and in our writings is that it is a global problem. It isn't just an Irish issue. I read this week articles about the Spanish housing crisis, the Portuguese housing crisis. Where I'm sitting this morning in the UK, I see articles every day about the UK's housing crisis. If you go to one of your favourite cities, Jim, San Francisco, you will see daily articles about the housing crisis. It is, in the first instance, a global problem, with no doubt some Irish domestic nuances and differences. But the common themes to all of these problems is that they are big city issues. They tend not to be regional or rural issues. Uh, So it's about San Francisco, it's about New York, it's about London, it's about Dublin, it's about Madrid. It's not about rural Spain, for instance. The second common feature of these housing crises are that they are the result in part, and I stress in part, of economic success. So if you're going to ask the question, what can we do to reverse the housing crisis, to solve the housing crisis, you have to do something about the thing that caused it. And if it's economic success, and in Ireland's case, it's the fact that you've got two and a half million people in work now. And that's what, since we started um, our economic life, that's up about a million, isn't it, Jim? Something, you know, give or take. So one way of solving the housing crisis would be to make sure to go backwards economically. And that isn't something that any of us would suggest is a good idea. But it is logical. If the problem is caused by economic success, you've got to stop the economic success to cure the problem. There are two other main factors. You've mentioned one, which is that in all of these countries and big cities that have these housing crises, planning problems, planning restrictions, NIMBYism, the whole regulatory framework is a big deal. And you've got to do something about that. It won't cure the problem but it is necessary to begin to cure the problem. The third thing that's common to all of these different things, again, I've talked about this, has been the low interest rate mortgage rate environment, which it has contributed. It's not the sole cause. It may not even be the most dominant cause, but I do think that that one at least is going into reverse because of the other thing that we talk about a lot, which is higher interest rates. And here in the UK, It may not have helped the housing supply issue, but it certainly affected the housing demand issue and house prices are now falling in the UK, starting in the big city where the problem originates, where it's at its most acute, London. And I think that you're starting to see glimmers of that elsewhere, including in Ireland. But the the, the thing, the political thing in Ireland of uh, housing being the only issue on which people are going to vote is for me the, one of the most interesting and indeed most sinister things because you, you, you've got the main opposition party capturing the issue in terms of the zeitgeist, in terms of the political mood, quite cleverly, quite brilliantly actually, and saying, you know, the government has failed and the only thing that you can do is turf the government out, vote us in, and we will turn that failure into success. It's a one-dimensional definition of economic, political and social success, housing, And it's a claim that will not be substantiated. They will not solve this housing problem because they don't have the policies and tools in order to be able to do it um, for the reasons that we have suggested many, many times. But the interesting thing is that that 35% of the electorate have fallen for it. Now, for me, the issue with electing Sinn Féin is, is that they will not solve the housing crisis. And that, yes, that is a forecast that I am making. 
the electorate will be disappointed by the lack of success that Sinn Féin will achieve in housing crisis because they will achieve as much success as all the other governments around the world that are trying to grapple with this problem. And nobody has succeeded with this because it is so difficult. It is so difficult to the point of being intractable that I'm beginning to think that the only thing that's going to solve this issue is that original point, which is that you've got to start reducing the amount of economic success that you have. In other words, a recession will sort, at least for a while, part of this problem out. And that isn't necessarily, I think, Sinn Féin's or indeed anybody's policies. The issue for me is a broader economic point, which is that if you have a populist government elected, um, and in this particular case, the populism is around housing, promising what things that can't be delivered. I think that's a good definition of populism, um, is that you'll end up with economies that don't look that different to here in the UK, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and to an increasing extent, England. And that is because you have a government in those uh, countries which has been focused on all sorts of things. In Scotland, it's the national question. In Wales, it's not being focused on anything at all apart from maybe the Welsh language. In Northern Ireland, it's always about identity and national questions. In England, the focus has been on Brexit and nothing to do with economics. And the commonality of all of those is that you've had countries being run uh, for reasons other than economics. Economics has taken uh, second place or indeed no place at all. And one of the things that happens when you don't focus on your economy, when you have a focus on national identity, on Irish unity, on Scottish independence, on Welsh language, your economy will suffer because you can't neglect economic policy. If you do, your economy will stagnate at best and at worst go backwards. And one of the things that has happened to Scotland and Wales in recent years is that those governments have driven their, their economies backwards. They haven't just stagnated. And in particular, guess what? Housing health and education have all gone backwards in these, these economies. So if you elect a government that pretends to focus on one area, but really has only one issue, and in the case of Sinn Féin, it's going to be the national question, analogous to the Scots, guess what's going to happen to your economy? And they won't solve the housing crisis. End of rant. Yeah, I think that there is another fundamental problem, Chris, with housing here. You talk about the cause of the problem. Uh, for a decade up to 2020, we delivered just over 11,000 housing residential unit completions per annum. Um, that is during a decade when the population continued to grow strongly and when you know economic activity was pretty strong as reflected in strong growth and employment. So th there is a huge fundamental um, backlog of unmet demand in the market. So you know, we're working through that as well as all of those other problems. And in relation to your, uh, you know, suggestion that one way of solving this is to um, damage economic activity deliberately, um, you know. Or otherwise. Or otherwise, absolutely. <laughs> I, was, I was being subtle there, okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, in terms of addressing the challenge of climate change and aging populations, um, a growing economy is absolutely essential to to generate the resources to address those problems. So, um, but, you know, I'll leave it there, Chris. And just to say that I think this is a discussion we will come back to many times about how these um, extreme fiscal resources should actually be used 
for the benefit of uh, society in our economics is very clear on this jim if you have uh, some windfall tax revenues and they can come from any one of a number of sources we've got the historic example of north sea oil here in the uk and in places like norway and economics is very very clear for once on what you should do with temporary increases in revenues you should save them and then that that leads to another discussion about whether saving should take the in the form of paying down government debt you could simply um, reduce your national debt uh, or you could invest the money and and the, it, that depends on whether you think the return from the two strategies which one is higher so if you get a higher rate of return from investing in stuff then you shouldn't uh, retire your debt but if if the debt interest saving that you have from retiring your debt is the biggest sum of money that is available to you then that's what you should do it's very analytical it's very straightforward in principle difficult to do in practice but that's what you should do you should save it norway saved their norway north sea oil revenues the uk spent them the uk didn't do what economics say norway did and norway is now in a much much stronger position so Ireland should clearly save these revenues that it the component of which it regards as temporary and probably invest them. I think that there are higher returns to investments that could be made um, than simply retiring national debt. And that is, to me, the end of the discussion. Yeah. Chris, you mentioned the impact that higher interest rates have on the housing market and uh, the Minutes of the March European Central Bank meeting were published this week. At that meeting on the 16th of March, rates were increased by half of 1%. Um, and in the statement after that interest rate increase, the governing council led by Christine Lagarde didn't come out and give any guidance about future interest rate moves. And that was interpreted by the markets and commentators at the time as the ECB started saying, listen, we're coming to the top of the cycle uh, but the minutes show otherwise number one there was a huge level of support not unanimous but a very significant level of support for an increase of a half percent there was a few dissenters who wanted to sit back for a while just to see how the banking turmoil at the time would actually um, develop um, but anyway the those who wanted rates to go up by half percent um, won the day and as i say it was a pretty strong support in that direction. But um, the minutes are also suggesting that the next meeting in May will see an increase of a quarter of 1% and that rate rises won't stop there. So for borrowers out there across Europe, including here in Ireland, um, I think the message is just continue to expect further interest rate increases over the coming months. We're not at the top of the cycle yet. And the, the sort of consensus view that's emerging now is that there's another 1% on the upside. So, do you, know, do you know how much money these ECB people get paid for coming out with this crap, Jim? I mean, do you think we're getting value for money as taxpayers in Europe? Uh, probably not. Jim, we know, I think, now, uh, as a result of events in recent weeks, that, um, that, that there is a problem building in the global economy, in, which includes Europe, by the way. Uh, Mohamed El Arian put it very well yesterday when she said that there's not a credit crunch brewing but we clearly have got a credit contraction brewing and I think that's absolutely right the oil price for me you mentioned that in your intro is the canary in the coal mine here and we got very excited the global financial markets got very excited last month when OPEC 
announced a new supply restriction in order to try and achieve their target of $100 a barrel. And the oil price shot up a lot. In the old days, we would have called it a mini oil price shock. Guess what's happened this week, Jim? I think you know what's happened this week. All of those uh, price rises for oil that took place as a result of OPEC supply restriction have now reversed. And that's because people are starting to get very worried about the world economy and the US economy in particular. The fuel that powers the world's uh, transport system, diesel, there's been a big spread uh, of diesel over ordinary petrol prices on global markets for quite some time now. That spread is shrinking because diesel demand isn't what people thought it was going to be. The conference board produces something, this is somewhat esoteric, uh, a set of leading economic indicators that most people never uh, pay any attention to whatsoever in the United States. And this week, it produced a set of numbers, leading indicators, as I say, that if the past is any guide to the future, that's always an if, this guarantees with 100% certainty that the US is going to go into recession. So we've got these big economic problems. I could go on. There are other indicators. But the fact that the oil price is going down when it should be going up um, tells me that economic activity is weakening. So doing the macho chest-thumping chest thing that these central banks bankers are doing um, makes me wonder about just how much we're paying them to do these jobs, Jim. Yeah, and looking across the Atlantic in what's happening in the United States, you mentioned the leading indicator series, which was a pretty damning indictment of where the US economy is going. Jobless claims yesterday, that's the weekly number of people sign, signing on, increased. The Federal Reserve's beige book that was published earlier this week says that job gains have moderated somewhat. Treasury tax receipts year to date are down 29%. So there's a lot of evidence, clear evidence that the US economy is also losing momentum. And yet overnight, we've had two Fed officials, um, Loretta Mester in Cleveland and Patrick Harker in Philadelphia, both saying there's a need to get interest rates above 5% because inflation is still way too high. Um, I think these people are failing to recognize that there is a significant lag between interest rate changes and the full economic impact to be felt. And, and by the time they cotton on to the fact that rates don't need to rise any further, the economy will probably already be in recession. And that's exactly what the US leading indicator series is projecting at the moment. Why should uh, we have any faith in these people at all? Yes, Jim? They made yeah. a complete balls of interest rate policy during um, the, the downturn and the pandemic and all the rest of it. They kept interest rates for too long, too low for too long. They have helped to contribute and make worse the inflation problem that resulted from the Ukraine war by their monetary. They've got it wrong at every single step along the way. Why do we think they're going to get it right now? Yeah, no, no, ab ab absolutely. Um, Janet Yellen was speaking at John Hopkins University in the last couple of days and she made the point that decoupling from China would be disastrous, although the United States may have to impose further measures to safeguard certain technologies from China. So this evolving China versus U.S. Uh, conflict, I think, just becomes more and more interesting by the day. As well, yeah, Absolutely. Jim, yeah. we're, we've run out of time. I'm not going to have time to talk about Dominic Raab. For that, actually, I'm, I'm quite grateful because I think I think life's too short to talk about people like, like Dominic Raab. But we're going to see later today 
whether or not Rishi Sunak has a backbone. I think that that's the the main takeaway from all, all of this particular saga is that already by dithering, we've shown just how much of a backbone Mr. Sunak actually does have. But have a great weekend. Fantastic conversation again, and I'll speak to you next week. Likewise, Chris. Have a good one. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 